0: Does have it all. All of our pre owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128 point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties a two year 100,000 mile powertrain warranty, and a 30 day 1,000 mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. Hubler
1: has it all.
2: Still here, vibing out in the drivehubler.com studio. I'm James Boyd alongside Jimmy Cook, Eddie Garrison. You listen to Query. And company. And this is, uh, that was quite the intro there, Eddie. I like that. For those who cannot listen to the music, you know, on the podcast, things like that, it was Usher, yeah.
3: Eddie spins on a Friday.
2: You know I know. This. I was like, man, I feel like I'm in a club. You know, <laughs> what's going on? So obviously, we have had a lot of fun talking about Purdue, IU, um, maybe not as much fun with IU because of what's going on there, Butler, Indiana State, a lot of things going on as far as the tournament goes or tournament seating and potential seating goes and we have my buddy Isaac Trotter on the line from 24-7 Sports. I know Isaac from college and I guess we're adults now with jobs so Isaac how you doing?
4: Doing well man good, uh, good to talk with you again. So obviously Isaac I know
2: you've been keeping up with a lot of things Big Ten. I won't start with our Illini which you know bothered me the other night but I will start with Purdue. Where do you think this team has grown the most from last season to this season, which could possibly make things different, obviously come tournament time.
4: Yeah, I think it's twofold. You know, I think a lot of people entered this year going, Hey, this is the same team with a lot of the same faces and they're going to have the same issues. I think Purdue has gotten a lot better in their lead guard play. Braden Smith has really elevated from, you know, I think a lot of people had questions about him is if he's going to be a Big Ten starter. Well, he answered those last year. Like, he's a good Big Ten starter. This year, he's elevated into a completely different tier. He's arguably one of the best five point guards in all of college basketball. And that mid-range pull-up jumper that he's able to get to just is so nasty. Like, that was a weakness last year. He spent all summer long, all off-season trying to hone that with his dad, doing a lot of workouts with him. And it's become a huge, huge strength. And I think that has really changed the complexion of this team because you know you can get so many free throws and so many shots at the rim with Zach Edey, And you know you're going to get really good open looks from three. But being able to differentiate your shot diet and having those mid-range pull-ups has really changed how you have to guard Purdue, how you have to guard their ball screens. And it's really been a big game changer. And then secondly is Lance Jones, just that added one more ball handler who's – electric in transition can really get out and run and knock down those catch and shoot threes before defenses can get set. That, that's nasty. And like when you can dominate in half court and then you have a little bit of transition offense to go with it with Lance Jones, that's a really, really good combination for a Purdue team that I think has everything it takes to win the national title.
2: Follow up to that. Zach Eady, the narrative around here for people who may not like him or pro the Boilermakers, Oh, he's just big what makes him special besides his size because we have seen even a jump from last year to this year even after winning the national player of the year last year
4: yeah i think he's probably the best conditioned athlete in all of college basketball and that's saying something right like he you're 7 foot 4 you're 300 pounds and his ability to run the floor like he does Every single time, take the beating he does, you know, attack the offensive glass, get back and, and also, you know, rip down defensive rebounds. Like he's playing 36 minutes a night, 20, like 42 minutes a night in, in overtime against Northwestern, like 35 against Indiana, like every single night to do that. Like we, we don't see that throughout college basketball. Guys that big usually don't play this many minutes and play as hard as he does. So I think he has really elevated from a conditioning standpoint. His lateral movement is better. His rim protection has been better. You know, some honestly, offensively lately, I haven't loved everything he's done. He was a lot better against Rutgers, but before that, he had struggled a little bit with some turnovers, some you know, some weird shots that you'd expect him to make that he was missing and in, in the paint. But defensively and everything else wise, he's checked off a ton of boxes, and I think that's why you're seeing him in that first round mock drafts. You know, where where legitimate NBA guys are really tied in are saying like this guy is potentially you know, a first round pick, potentially even maybe a top 20 pick. And I think it's all warranted from all of the work that he's done to change his body and really change his game to become an even more modern big man, despite, you know, not being like the, Hey, I'm a, I'm a big who's going to go out and shoot 40% from three on, on a lot of high volume.
3: National college basketball writer for 24 seven sports. Isaac Trotter is our guest sticking with Purdue. Isaac, there has been a habit because of how good they've been. And it's a good problem to have because they only have three losses on the season. But there's been a habit of trying to find ways to beat Purdue and kind of classic, as happens in today's media cycle, overreactions after the losses. There also could be, though, overreactions after the wins. Because as James and I talked about to start the show, like, yes, Steve Pike was a great coach. Rutgers is always a physical team. They are the epitome of Big Ten basketball, especially on the defensive end. And Purdue had their way with them from start to finish last night. They go 90% from the foul line and 52% from three. If they play like that, no one's beating them. Like if they, Zach Eadie goes for 25 and they're as effective as they were from beyond the arc and don't have hiccups taking care of the basketball or at the foul line, nobody's beating them. And that's the reaction from a win over Rutgers. When you look at the ebbs and flows, because you cover this on a daily basis, where is the appropriate reaction for Purdue as they stand with four games to play, three of which are in quad one territory because of where the Big Ten has allotted itself this year?
4: You know, I think Purdue has really had a hard time figuring out its rotation at times. Yes, they're 24-3. and Yes, they've won all these games. Yes, it's played well. But lately, I think they're kind of trying to tinker and find what their best five man lineup is. And from from one game perspective against Rutgers, I think they found it a little bit with Camden Heidi really asserting himself. I love that dude. Like I think he is like a redshirt freshman who has just gotten better and better. And yes, it's great when you make shots and then threes go in, like you you look better. But just the bounce that he has, the athleticism that he gives them, you know, we talk a little bit more about that transition offense. I think he gives them a, a spark there. Like you have to guard him too. And I, I like his defense too. I think he's Had moments where he has really moved his feet well. So, from a big picture standpoint, I think Purdue is starting to find that lineup that they really like. Because if Cam Heidi becomes this piece, that hey, when Fletcher Lawyer is struggling, or hey, those big wings are giving Fletcher Lawyer some trouble. If you can go to Cam Heidi and you don't necessarily have to go to Ethan Morton, I just feel like the offense moves a little bit better, it flows a little bit easier, and it's just another piece that, that another arrow, so to speak, that, that uh, Matt Painter and his and his coaching staff can really go to and in, in that arsenal and just have something different, have those counters, so that they can win games in different ways. Because you know, I I think we all know like you have to win six different games and six different. Ways to win it all in March, and I think Purdue is starting to find that rhythm a little bit more and find ways to win when it's not just the Zach Eady show and when it's not just the Braden Smith show and when it's not just the the Lance Jones show. They can do a lot of different things now.
3: It feels like we've reached a point in the season where, yes, there's clear separation for Houston and UConn and Purdue, but you never know what the tournament itself is going to draw. You throw Kansas in there as well. There's also times, though, where it looks like a parody-filled season of college basketball where maybe anything can happen, and this could be the wide-open type of March Madness that fans, those that cover the sport, love. For those that are on top of the landscape for this season, this season in a vacuum, how much more value, if at all, is there on securing the consensus number one overall seed in the tournament if you're UConn or locally based if you're Purdue?
4: I think it's a big advantage this year, especially, you know, because I I genuinely think that, you know, between number four nationally and maybe number 30 nationally, I don't think that gap is very big. Like the fourth best team in college basketball, maybe that's Arizona. Like they're, they're a really good team who I think is in that top tier, but they're not. You know, this world beater that can, can't ever be touched by anybody. They, they lost at home last night to, to Washington State. So I think if you're Purdue and you put yourself in position to win that number one overall seed, which I think they are pretty well positioned to do, right? Like coming down the stretch, if they beat Michigan State, Illinois, Wisconsin, you know, even if they win two out of those three games, you're talking about, you know, a quad one record that's just absurd. You go into the Big Ten tournament, go on a run there, you're probably going to lock up that number one seed. They have a better resume than UConn. You can debate whether. You know, UConn might be the better team or, or, or whether whether Purdue's the better team. But I think Purdue clearly has the better resume with those remaining games to potentially seal that, that uh, number one overall seed. And if they do get that, I really do think it is a big advantage just because the gap between you know, that three and 30, like I was talking about, isn't all that wide. And you have to give yourself the best chance every single night. And there's some scary eight seeds and there's some scary nine seeds out there. But I'm telling you what, everybody is more scared of Purdue than they should be of anybody else. I guarantee that those conversations are happening in those coaches' offices. Nobody wants to be in that eight or nine bracket with Purdue on the loop other side of it, especially if you don't have a center that can that can really like be up to task with the physical assault that Edie and, the, and even Treykov and Wren can really bring on you.
2: To pivot from Purdue to IU for just a second here, obviously IU has not had the season they wanted to have. We knew they would take a step back after losing two NBA players. However, what do you think is the reason why they've maybe regressed to this degree, Isaac, where it's almost been sort of unrecognizable what this program has put out there, put on display, even the other night losing in Nebraska at home?
4: Yeah, I think it goes back to just the portal and the game plan in it. I didn't love the way that this roster was constructed, uh, but also Indiana really wanted Dalton connect, and that was the guy that they looked at in the portal and were like this is you know the piece that could really change our team, and they just couldn't get it. Tennessee was the the school that really put the most effort in there, and Indiana couldn't really get back in the mix with Tennessee, and and he ends up going there and has a great year. And a part of me wonders like how different would we feel about Mike Woodson? And this whole really, this whole program, if they get connect on, involved, like, because he's maybe a top fifteen pick, probably the best transfer in all of college basketball this year. So I think they knew what they needed, which was that you know that versatile three who could really handle it, potentially go get his own bucket at times, and and be that that shot maker that clears room for Malik Renu and Kalel Ware to really assert themselves. And when they weren't able to get it, you know, Mackenzie and McBacco was a solid pivot point to it, but this group just has a lot of power forwards on the floor and they don't have enough skill and they don't have enough playmaking off the bounce. And, you know, I think they definitely thought that they were going to get a different version of Xavier Johnson than that, than what's happened. And Trey Galloway's had moments this year where he's been fine, but you know, Indiana's multiple guards away and college basketball is a guards game more than ever. Indiana's bigs are talented, but their guard play, you know, it might not be the worst in the Big Ten, but it's near the bottom of the league, and that that's just shouldn't happen. It just can't happen at a program like Indiana with the resources that they have.
3: Well, there's my issue looking towards next year, and from your national seat, Isaac Trotter joins us, National College basketball writer for 24-7 Sports. Uh, Ja'Kai Newton ends up getting hurt before the season starts. They don't see any of him. Mike Woodson is set on record, which I, I have a hard time with it, and it's, a, it's just a tough look for the program, but he set on record earlier this week that – he didn't anticipate Jalen Huchfino leaving after one year. He thought he was going to be a two-year guy, but you highlighted it. They tried to address it in the portal. You look at next year, Ja'Kai Newton, you're hoping, I guess, for a leap forward from Gabe Cups, and maybe he will be. I think he projects as a nice player in the Big Ten, but he's got to put on more muscle and he needs to continue to grow. But that's a lot to ask out of even a sophomore, and they don't have a signature guard on the recruiting trail next year. So once again, it comes down to the portal – Let's say for the sake of argument, Isaac, Mbaco stays, Renew stays, where goes the NBA? If they don't have a guard, but they're adding Liam McNeely, what what changes for this group? Because that's where I have a problem. I can stomach a bad season, but I worry if you still don't have the guard play, you're going to be in the same boat as you are right now.
4: No, no question. You're right on the money. And the thing is, is I think that the presence of Xavier Johnson and Trey Galloway certainly impacted potential transfers who are looking at Indiana going, Hey, like, that's great. I want to come there, but like, am I going to get to play? So Xavier Johnson leaves, you know, I don't think anybody's going to look, I mean, people will want to play with Trey Galloway. He's a, he's a winning player. I think who legitimately has, we've seen him play on really good teams, a lot of talent and find ways to make other guys better. But I don't think anybody's going to look at this rest of Indiana's backcourt and be super scared that they're going to lose minutes. So I expect Indiana to go in the portal. And I think that they're going to be big game hunting for some of the best lead guards in the sport and you gotta do that. And if you could have insert a big time lead guard, I mean there were a lot of great lead guards in this last cycle. I think a lot of coaches that I've talked to are expecting, you know, I asked, hey, is this guy entering the portal? Hey, is this person entering the portal? The answer I usually get is yes, everyone's entering the portal. So like if you go into the if you go into this next portal cycle and get one of those top guards and you have McNeely and you have, you know, McMaco, maybe you slide him to the four and then you have Renew at the five, I think you could see Indiana start to get back to you know, shooting more threes and playing a little bit, you know, more new age basketball instead of the, you know, the, the constant 18 foot two point jumpers that it feels like Indiana's shot diet is just filled with this year.
1: Whether it's audiobooks or all time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclib 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
2: Isaac, we got Butler at Seton Hall, I believe Saturday night. I see in your latest piece, you said this isn't a playing game, but it feels like it. You know, both teams are desperate. You know, only so much time to sort of of shore this thing up or make a run if you're Thadmada and company. What is the key to possibly doing so when their defense has obviously let them down in some big moments this season?
4: Yeah, the the rim defense this year just hasn't been good enough. And I think that they're going to be really challenged. This Seton Hall team. You know, we talk about like football teams that like to drive the foot or like to run the ball. This is a Seton Hall team that wants to drive (laughs) basketball. They will get downhill and they will get to the rim at will. And Kadari Richmond's been one of the best players in the sport. I think he's a pro too, six foot six, 205 pound wing. So Butler's guards and their wings are going to be really challenged by this Seton Hall group. And that's a tough team. Shaheen Holloway does a really good job with that Seton Hall team of just establishing toughness and and they play with an edge. So Butler has to be the aggressor aggressor in in that matchup. And Butler struggled at times on the road lately too. But it it, it is one of those situations where we can't lose sight of the big picture, I think, with Butler. Like overall, this has been a pretty positive year for them. The fact that they're in the mix after everything that they've been through. you know We've seen a lot of teams have to go into the portal and completely revamp their rosters. And so the fact that they're competitive – is a pretty great sign. When I, you know, I looked up the stats. If if you brought in seven or more transfers this year, you know, all eight of those teams from the high major ranks aren't NCAA tournament teams this year. And Butler brought in six, so they didn't quite qualify, but they're right in the mix for it. So I think overall, Mata's done a really good job with this group. But you've got to find a way to win this game. And if you do, you're probably beating St. John's. You're probably beating DePaul. You probably can beat Xavier. And you start feeling good about yourself heading into Big East play and give yourself a chance to, to get in that large bid.
3: Yeah, it feels like this is legitimately, as James outlined there, the, the, the play-in game before the play-in game because you're able to really solidify your resume and get yourself running downhill with, as you mentioned, St. John's, DePaul, and Xavier to play. Let's, let's play out the doomsday scenario, though, for Butler. And I say that <laughs> only because of... The missed opportunity. I'm with you with what that mod has done in year two. They're way ahead of expectations. I know the fan base is hungry to get back there. It's been six years since they've been a part of March Madness, but once, if it goes south for them to close, once that dust settles, you have to be pretty happy with the season they've had. That said, it's all still in front of them, but Doomsday, they lose to Seton Hall. They close, win over St. John's, a quad two win, not majorly significant, win over DePaul we had John Fanta on the other day and he basically said he'd be better off paying DePaul not to play that game in terms of what it actually does for Butler from a resume standpoint because <laughs> you lose it, it's a death sentence and you win it and, okay, good, you took care of business against one of the worst teams in college basketball. And then Xavier at home, say they go 3-1 but they lose Seton Hall. I know you're not a bracketologist necessarily but you follow this enough, Isaac. Realistically, how much noise would they have to make in the Big East tournament to get back in the conversation and making the dance or... Because they've lost to Seton Hall, who is a fellow bubble team, they already have a tough uphill climb to begin with.
4: Yeah, I think it really would come down to who their draw is in the in the Big East tournament. Like if if I'm Butler in that scenario. I'm begging for a chance to play UConn, Marquette or Creighton, right? Like you, you really want to play one of those teams. And if you could beat one of those teams and get a chance to play another one, that would be awesome as well. Just neutral site against, you know, high level quad one wins. that would be the path to it. And then you kind of look around the bubble, like there's plenty of opportunities for both Butler and Seton Hall to sneak into this field too. So I don't think it necessarily is one or the other because certain other teams could, could fall off the page. And if you look at, Butler's overall resume, they really have done a good job of not having those terrible losses. They just kinda need to rack up those wins. I think they're four and ten in quad one games so far this year. So if you head in the big East tournament, you're just begging for a chance to play one of those three elite teams at the top and hoping for a shot to potentially get one or maybe even two to feel better about yourself on Selection Sunday. And if, if the fact that Butler's even thinking about a Selection Sunday berth is a huge win this year. And I know the program wants to get in and everything, but the fact that they're thinking about it, I really do think says a lot about where this program is headed and what they can do next year. Because they're, they're selling the portal heading into next year is so much better than what it was last year. And I, that's a that's a really huge key.
2: So for those listening, they may not know this, but Isaac was a bruiser when we played basketball back in college. Um, My chest was never hurt by him because I got out of the way. And so in that same vein, Isaac, jokes aside, who do you think is sort of like that tough bully team that could go on a run and and have a chance to make some noise come March because of their style of playing, their physicality, and maybe it's just because they just want it more than the other guy?
4: Well, I mean, that's a great point. You know, there's a couple of teams out there that I I look at. The, The normal one is Houston, right? Like, they are legitimate hyenas. They play like they want to rip your head off and they want to kill you with offensive rebounds. And they will laugh at you on the way off the floor because they just punked you for 40 minutes. Like they are so physical. The other team though, that plays a lot like it with a little bit more skill is Florida. One of the best offensive rebounding teams in college basketball. I think, you know, they, they offensive rebound like 40% of their chances. It's just absurd what they're able to do. And they have some really great guard play, but it's deep. So that's a group that I, you know, if they're, if they get into the tournament as a seven, eight, nine seed, I'm going to be looking hard and long at them at putting them in the second weekend. Cause that's, they continue to be one of those teams that I just really genuinely like. Maybe I'm off on my own island, but the, just everything I see with them is great guard play, these forwards that just chase every offensive rebound down. You just feel them every time they play. Like They'll, they'll leave cuts and bruises all over the floor. Like That's a really good group, so I, I'm going to have a hard time keeping Florida out of that second weekend in my bracket, and I have a feeling it's going to probably be more mainstream. That take will be mainstream in a couple of weeks.
2: See, that's what I like to hear right there. I'm telling you, this dude used to play so hard. I remember thinking like, oh, no, nah, my insurance is not that good. You ain't about to hurt me. And so I was very diplomatic in my approach to loose balls and things like that with Isaac Trotter on the
3: floor. Like, you, that was a real you, thing. You got high basketball IQ, James. I don't think, oh, I don't think any of us ever... I got have common ever, sense. Ever, uh, common sense, for sure. <laughs> Isaac Trotter joins his national college basketball writer for 24-7 sports. Isaac, kind of a two-part question in regards to conferences. The, the Big East from... The advanced metric standpoints, the net, quad one wins, all that good stuff, they have been viewed by many in that vein as one of the best conferences in college basketball. But there's a ton of top-level action from Power 5 schools. Where in your mind, A, is the best conference as it stands for the 23-24 campaign with only a couple games left to play? And secondly, where is the – this can be mid-major, this can be top-level – Where's the best conference tournament we need to circle? Because I'll watch them all, but from your perspective, where's the best conference tournament in the coming weeks we should have our eyes on that maybe we don't have already?
4: Yeah, I think the Big 12 is probably college basketball's best conference. I think the SEC for me would probably be second. I think that league, everyone thinks of them as a football league. But the, the commitment to basketball from the NIL perspective has been a real thing, and it's not just Kentucky. We've seen teams like South Carolina, Auburn. Uh, those two teams are kind of in the middle of the pack at the beginning of the year. They've really, really improved. So I, I think that that SEC is a lot better from a basketball perspective. But, I mean, like you said, championship week coming up, that's the, one of the most fun times of the year when you can just watch all these tournaments. You, if you're not watching Mountain West basketball, you are missing out on just a delightful conference. Like all of these leagues are are really good, but the Mountain West has just some special home court advantages. They have guards who have played there for a while. You know, like Jalen House at New Mexico. He's kind of a spaz on the floor, and he knows like the weaknesses and strengths of almost every player he goes against. Like because he's played against them forever, and so he's like he's screaming like I'm in his head, I'm in his head all the time about like you know Jared Lucas from Nevada, who they've hooped against each other. For multiple years in a row and this is a league that's been super competitive they have seven teams within one game of the conference title like they could have six teams in the ncaa tournament so that at large case for all of those teams would be strengthened if you don't have to worry about it you could win that league so you could you could go into the conference tournament there in the mountain west with seven eight teams that could potentially win it all and that's that's pretty surprising. Like, So I expect, I expect major, major fireworks in that league, and it's been, it's been awesome all year long throughout the regular season, and I expect that conference tournament to just be sick.
2: So last one for me, brother. I'm curious to know, Isaac, what is the setup when it comes to tournament time, March Madness? Because for so long we were just sneaking and watching games in class – those times have kind of shifted, you know, a few years from removed from that at this point. But what is the setup for a person who is a national college basketball writer for 24-7 sports, and you have to literally keep up with everything that happens? Do you have four screens? Do you have three screens? Do you have multiview multi maybe? Yeah, multi-view. Like, what is the setup, the hookup?
4: All right, so I need YouTube TV to pay me because I, I like that YouTube TV four-screen setup big time. That's yeah. huge. And then I have, like, app broadcast open up on my laptop with like 6 or 7 there and then like my notes app open to write notes while I'm watching you know it's there's a method to the madness. It's pure hell, to be honest. Though it's just so <laughs> many games and so many teams and so many names. I'm constantly logging into Synergy at like 10 o'clock at night or 7 a.m. in the morning to rewatch games that I can't couldn't catch. But yeah, I'm excited for uh, I'm excited for March Madness, just like everybody else. And that four screen view on on YouTube TV is pretty clutch. And I could use a sponsorship, to be honest. While I'm, while we're here, <laughs>
2: I'll have my people talk to their people, and uh, we'll get that we'll get that situated for you, nice and uh, nice and quick, Isaac. But um, jokes aside, my man, thank you. So- so much. I'll talk to you soon and have fun with March Madness. I'll be more of a fan. You'll be working, but I got, I got to imagine you're pretty happy about that.
4: Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Isaac.
2: Again, that was Isaac Trotter, reporter for 24/7 Sports, covers college basketball on a national level.
1: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
2: So obviously you all know, listeners out there, Indianapolis natives, the combine is upon us. It's going to be here in a few days. I'll obviously be there. And we have one of my buddies, Nick Bumgarner, from The Athletic on the Line. He is what I consider to be one of the draft gurus. He follows this stuff a lot more closely throughout the year than me. So, Nick, how you doing? And what are your thoughts on just getting to this point in the offseason where it feels like things are heating up a little bit?
0: Mm, good, fellas. I hope you guys are well. I mean, I'm really glad that they didn't move the thing from Indy, first and foremost. Like, I, We talk about this every year. I was just, I was just talking to this uh, with Dane Brugler about this actually the other day. Like, if they ever move this thing away from Indy, I don't know what anyone's going to do because it's like the perfect city for all of this. So excited to get back and uh, get rolling. I mean, got to get to St. Elmo's and some good steak going here this week for sure. Or next
4: week, I should say.
2: See, Nick has already got it mapped out. St. Elmo's yeah. first, football <laughs> you second. You have to. You have okay. to have a strategy of what you're
3: going to attack. <laughs> and I'm glad Nick is savvy enough right. to know St. Elmo's has to be on the list. There you go. Exactly. So, That's right. Nick, obviously the...
2: Colts are not in a position they were last year where we all knew they have to draft a quarterback. They don't have any answers at quarterback. They have their guy who they believe can be a dude. Right. But at 15, where do you see them possibly going and is Brock Bowers a legitimate potential pick for them considering how his value might oscillate between now and obviously the draft?
0: I mean, if he falls to them, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, if he falls to them, that's that's got – I mean, and that's real. That's realistic. I mean, the, the way that yeah, – uh, the board is so quarterback dependent this year because so many teams need one. The Colts jump the line on that one. Um, you know, maybe that will turn out to be smart on them, but they don't have to worry about it this year. You know, there's going to be some teams that have to reach and you know, go a little higher than maybe you would want, and that's why the buzz on, you know, J.J. McCarthy right now, for instance, is, you know – got him pushed all the way up to the top 10 or at least inside the top 15, which I think is pretty legitimate because while he's not a top 15 player, certainly not a top 10 player, you know, he's the next in line at quarterback and he's a worthy first round pick. And some teams just have no choice. So yeah, tight end tends to slip anyway in most years. Uh, Bowers I think is a little different though. I mean, he is, you know, there there's going to be teams that have him uh, certainly top five on their board overall in the entire class, regardless of position. I mean, he's that good of a player. Uh, I could see him going to the Chargers up there at five or six, whatever they're at. Um, but yeah, I mean, he could totally fall. And if he fell to Indy, that's it because Indy has knees, of course, but they could do a, a few different things. There's not anything they sort of have to do. But I think that'd be an awesome fit if he were able to fall down there and give them a, another anchor on, on offense to build around.
3: Nick Bumgarner is our guest, senior writer at The Athletic, and does great coverage, among all things NFL, but especially around this time of year with the NFL draft. Nick, I've made it clear on this show a number of times, I'm an offensive first guy. I think a lot of people are. like We love the high flare of high-powered offenses mm-hmm. and big game-wrecking plays, and especially here in Indy when you have a young quarterback, assuming they bring back Michael Pittman Jr., it's nice to dream about the idea of them, whether it's in free agency or in the draft, getting another weapon like a Brock Bowers or like this wide receiver rich class, but let's say they don't do that. And my initial reaction is usually like, all right, they're going with somebody on the defensive side of the ball in the range for them. Why should Colts fans, if they are like me, they're offense first minded. Why should they still be excited if they go, let's say cornerback or an edge rusher. And if it's the latter, a spot that the Colts have kind of been seeking that next great edge rusher for this franchise.
0: That's a great question because I think that those are two first spots in particular, uh, especially corner and really edge too. But really, I think corner where you could end up if you're the Colts, you could end up with the top corner on the board. I just did my <clears throat> three-round mock a couple weeks ago, and I have Terry and Arnold Alabama's uh, corner there as my top corner, and I think he's a top ten player. But I had him at, down there at the Colts because I mean there was nobody, you know. I mean, like I couldn't get the corner thing started, and too many teams needed other stuff, and it was just one of those things that he got pushed down. And you know that's we're talking about a top ten player that that falls to you, and not no question about it. I think he's a starter right away. A guy can come in and help your defense. A guy can come in and help, you know, help others around him improve. And I think that's the type of thing that if you're sitting in the middle of the draft like this, when there's so many teams that need a quarterback, that's what you're really hoping for. Like Jared Verse would be another one if he were able to fall, and I think he could. The Florida State edge there, who's really freaky. You mentioned Latu as uh, another one there in that range, but Verse is another one that's. You know, in any other year, you know, he's. we're talking about him as a top 12, no question about it. But, you know, with the quarterbacks the way they are, I don't know. Maybe somebody slides or falls. And the same thing could happen to these receivers. I don't think that that's a slam dunk. I don't think it'll happen. But, like, if somebody slides and falls, so who's to say? I mean, it's not impossible.
3: How much easier does it make life for the Colts if they decide to go defense? And let's say solely in the cornerback room when they feel yep. like they already have a great piece of having potentially hit a home run with Juju Brent where they took him last year.
0: Yes, I mean I think that if you do that and you get a guy like Arnold or even Quinion Mitchell that falls to you there, um I think both those guys would be certainly uh, worthy of that spot where the Colts are at. I think that it allows you to do other things beyond that when you start to go, you know, into the second round beyond you mentioned receiver earlier and obviously Pittman's part of the conversation. But yeah, I gave him Jalen Polk, uh, the kid from Washington. And there's so many good receivers that are going to be there in the second round that are going to be starters. Troy Franklin, Xavier Worthy. Uh, we mentioned Polk, Malachi Corley, the kid from Western Kentucky. There's so many good players that would be able to come in and be quarterback-friendly receivers. That get Roman Wilson's another one that would be you know a best friend type for an Anthony Richardson, a guy that is always open, is always on time, doesn't drop passes. And those are the players I feel like the Colts need to surround him with And there's a lot of guys in that second round area there. I wouldn't do it with their first round pick. I think it's a little too high. But if you get the rest of that stuff off the board, if you get like a starter on defense that just falls to you, it allows you to do so many different things, you know, the rest of the day.
2: So, Nick, to pivot a little bit away from the Colts to the Lions, which is the team that you really focus on Mm -hmm. throughout the season, obviously we saw what they were able to do last year, what they built. And I thought one of the interesting questions that was asked to Daniel Jeremiah of NFL Network yesterday was you know could they be the blueprint for other teams you know as far as taking a player versus is the positional value where it needs to be or modern NFL is it worth to take a running back this high all those things um what do you think of their need perhaps to kind of tweak some things to get right back there because I thought what Dan Campbell said after they lost to the 49ers was was real like you know this might have been our one shot however they have Mm -hmm. some pieces still there to get back there obviously it's gonna be harder um things change it's football people get hurt all those things but what about them kind of gives you a little bit of uh a, a, i don't know i don't want to say hope is the right word but just the idea that okay it, it is realistic for them to make this a sustained window for detroit city that was kind of starving for this
0: yeah and i think that's the most important part is that it can be it can be a sustained window and i think that's real i think that's that is very real and, and he's right about you know, you get that far and you never know, right? You never know if you you're, you know, no matter how good you are, you just don't know how, how that's going to go. Uh, but I do think that if you look at their roster, you know, they have so many good, their best players are all on rookie contracts, you know I mean? Except for golf, um, you know, Amara, St. Brown, Penisual, Aiden Hutchinson, Laporta, uh, Gibbs, you know, now adds into the fray, Lee McNeil's another one. They they just have done such a great job um, with their top, I would say like four picks of the last three or four years uh, really, the last three, Brad Holmes' drafts, uh, and they just haven't missed, you know, on really hardly any. And and when you build your team, you know, through the draft, and Colts fans know this too. I mean, it, Ballard's whole thing got a little obviously off, off kilter, but that was the whole idea there too to begin with: is build the team through the draft, have a good foundation, and then try to extend that window as long as you can to run a quarterback. And I think that you know they 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 like where golf sat. W- I'm very curious to see what that contract's going to look like. I would assume there'll be an extension for him. I don't know what it'll be, Um, but I do think they have a little bit more of a window than maybe people might've realized because yeah, they're, they're, they're one of the youngest teams in the league. And I think that that is a blueprint uh, in that it's just about drafting the best possible player you can that fits your locker room. And if it doesn't, if the guy doesn't fit your locker room, then don't do it. And I think that that's pretty much the simple principle Uh, They tend to use, and it's worked out pretty well so far.
3: Nick Bumgarner of The Athletic taking some time with us here on Query and Company. Nick, a year ago, Dalton Kincaid, Michael Mayer, Sam Laporte, to name a few, headlined Mm -hmm. what was a, a pretty strong, especially towards the top, tight end class. There's a couple teams. Cincinnati was linked towards a tight end potentially last year. Kansas city is going to be preparing for life after Travis Kelsey and here locally for, I mean, not like that. He's going to retire, but you know what I mean? Building towards who the next tight end is in that system. And for the Colts, I feel like with what Shane Steichen wants to do, they have a lot of good tight ends that don't do a ton. Great, but they do a lot of things well. And maybe a tight end like Brock Bowers this year is a piece that is perfect for a Shane Steichen led offense. If they don't take him, I mentioned the prospects a year ago it seemed like there were multiple avenues you could go down. Is there that same level of high end depth at the position this year when it comes to tight end?
0: No, it's not nearly as good. Last year's was darn near generational in terms of the number of guys that you had in the top one hundred that was that was a bit, a bit a bit of a reach or a bit newer I should say um but this is not this isn't bad. This is uh, you know maybe one b i mean close to i think the position in general, if you really follow college football is getting deeper. Uh, as college teams start to understand what to do with tight ends uh, more, you know, they're starting to let them, you know, block more and and have more responsibility in that and not just ask them to be big, long receivers that go out there and stand around. So there are more guys, you know, like, uh, you know, even into the third round, I think this year that you can find a starter. uh, You know, Theo Johnson's a kid from Penn State that had a really nice senior bowl, Kate Stover from Ohio State. And the other really good one, uh, beyond Bowers, uh, Jatavian Sanders, a kid from Texas, who's really, really athletic and could do a lot of things. Jaheim Bell from Florida is another one like this. So there's a lot more um, NFL-ready tight ends, I should say, coming out in the last maybe three or four years than we saw in the previous handful because I think the position has changed and developed into more of a, you know, are you looking for an inline guy? Are you looking for a flex guy? Are you looking for a guy that can do both? And I think that the a lot of college teams are starting to understand what pro teams are looking for. And so you got guys that are sort of properly compartmentalized and they know what they're doing and they know what they know what's asked of them. So I think that it's better than it's been, but it's not as good as what it was last year. Last year was really, really good, one of the best we've seen in a long time.
2: So I can't I can't have you come on the show, be a draft guru slash analyst, and not ask about Justin Fields
1: and mm-hmm. the Chicago
2: Bears and Caleb Williams. And if you put your GM hat on, Nick, right now, which way are you leaning? And more realistically what makes this decision so unique, perhaps, than other quarterback decisions? Because obviously, I would say usually every year it's like, oh, do you trade up to get a guy or do you just draft this guy? But, like, they have a guy who could yeah. be really good, and then they have a guy right. who could be really good who might be a lot cheaper as well. So, or which way are you leaning, and how do you see that kind of playing out?
0: Well, I think the, the, the uniqueness of it is that you've got a guy who, yes, like who who is so talented – and everybody knows it and you you as the franchise have failed him you know and i think that's the situation he's getting to the end of his deal here now and you failed him you're really not any closer to competing than you were when you started and when you take a guy like that you have to be ready the bears when they took fields really when the bears took him and the lions didn't like that was the great test case scenario for a lot of teams that they should copy that yes because the lions were not ready for a quarterback then if they have taken justin fields back in 2021 it would have been the same thing it would have been a mess and they they would be in the same situation right now as the Bears are in. So, you know, I, I think it's a unique situation from that standpoint that you're going to have to probably maybe move on from a guy that you really hate to do that because he's got so much ahead of him still. And that's sort of indicative of how, you know, football is these days. These quarterbacks need more time when they come out. But not all of them do. And I think that when you see a guy like Caleb Williams sitting there and you have another pick in the top ten, you have a chance to add – you know, Caleb Williams and maybe a top receiver with him. I mean, that's like franchise changing, I think. And I think that that's something that you just can't, you know, ignore or turn down no matter how much, you know, you you like how Justin Fields improved last year. And I think he did, you know, improve quite a bit. But, like, if you don't do that and Caleb Williams goes somewhere else and you have to sit there and watch that and Fields doesn't turn into basically a pro bowler next year, you're regretting it, right? Like, so I think that that's the line you're walking. And I would assume that, you know Fields is traded, and you know the Bears take Caleb or you know Drake May or whoever it is there at the, at the top. I would assume it's it's Caleb, and they move on from there. But that's it's such a tough spot because they're in this position. You know they they made that great trade with Carolina, but like if they hadn't done that, it would be just a total mess. So uh, it's weird for sure, but I think that's it's something where they're going to have to do something here soon because uh, there'll be enough suitors for Fields. There's enough suitors. He's a talented kid. There'll be enough out there for him.
3: The Athletics' Nick bumgartner is our guest, covers the NFL at large as well as the NFL draft. Nick, wide receiver in this draft, we know it's at least on paper appears to be deep and there's going to be opportunities to be able to select one that could maybe not fully change the fortune of a franchise right away depending on where you're picking, but could definitely help speed up offensive development. Kind of a right. two-angled question here. I don't think the Colts are doing this, but just to you know stir the pot a little bit for the Colts fans and then get realistic with it. What are the chances a team moves up for Marvin Harrison Jr. in this draft? I know that's the hardest part of mocking, but what, what, are the, what are the chances something like that happens? And then smaller scale, maybe more realistically, is it worth it for a team not for Marvin Harrison Jr.? Maybe somebody in the 10 to 15 range like the Colts are to trade up to get one of the top shelf wideouts in this deep class?
0: I do think that that's possible, and I think not just for Marvin there. I think Malik Neighbors and maybe even Odunze. Uh, Roma Dunze, the kid from Washington, the, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, you know, Dane internally, the line between, and Harrison is number one. And my board, I mean, Harrison on some people's boards is going to be number one player in the draft. Um, but the line between Harrison and Neighbors is not as wide as people probably think. And I think that speaks more about how good Neighbors is as a legit top five pick or a legit top five prospect. And I think some people are also going to have Roma Dunze up there at maybe five or six. And I think back to a couple years ago when you know some teams moved up and we saw Devonta Smith, the Eagles moved up to get him. Um, You know, I this this feels familiar to that class a little bit in that you've got three guys at the top who I do think are possible you know game changers who can come in right away and help whoever is throwing to them make make them look a lot better. You know what I mean? I think beyond that it gets a little trickier, and you got guys that are going to help offensive development, like you said, guys that are going to come in and help an offense get a lot better and help a situation. But those three at the top. Uh, are really really good, and I could definitely see you know somebody down there who's got the assets to do it say, hey, we got a situation here where we like everything, but we need to be a little bit more explosive. Let's go get one of these guys because they can change everything, and they're cheap. Like I said, I mean it's rookie deals, so I could see that happening for sure. I think that's uh, absolutely a possibility.
1: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kiskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kiskali is right for you. Nick, I kind of want to take
2: a step, I guess, back big picture-wise, and I got a kick out of this when I was looking at some people like, you know, do you go the Patrick Mahomes route, and do you just draft a bunch of guys and and get guys on one-year deals to – build around your quarterback, and I'm like, well, that's not that's not your quarterback, <laughs> you know? So
0: right. um
2: how have you seen maybe the wide receiver market, not market, but the draft itself shift over the last few years where it seems like you can get a number one guy like oh, yeah. ready to go from day one as opposed to maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. How have you seen that kind of shift with just the way offenses have been built in NCAA? until now where you can have a Jamar Chase come in and be a number one right away, you can have Marvin Harrison Jr. potentially be a number one right away and others we've seen throughout recent years.
0: Yeah, I love this conversation because it is it's changed right before our eyes and it's happened in the last like five to ten years and it's like something that everybody saw coming and we knew it was happening. And I'm not sure that the receivers playing today quite understand it, right? Some of the some of the money they asked for. Because I, I always say all the time, I'm like, you guys aren't getting that money anymore because there's every year it's not just this year it's not just last year it'll be next year and the year after that the the way that teams started to move away from you know the spread and shred with the power spread stuff and start now we're going to spread out and throw the ball so now you know you're finding players uh you're better athletes at a younger age and you're having them play receiver and it used to be you know in the 90s 2000s and in the early 2010s or even it would be it would take a while for a college receiver to truly understand everything that needs to happen, and it would be a process. And that's just not the case uh, at all anymore. You see guys walk in the door as freshmen and are just absolutely outstanding, uh, and that's where the best athletes tend to go. I always joke about it. Um, you know, you go to a recruiting camp anywhere in the country, uh, you know, a top 100 camp or whatever, and the line uh, at receiver is five times as long as a line at corner. And it's like the coaches will always joke about, everybody gets paid, you know what I mean? Like, they need corners, the same thing. But, like, the best athletes want to play receiver, and that's that's how it's been. I feel like for quite a while in the way that offenses go today, you're 100% right. You don't need to overspend or do anything crazy. You can consistently find and replenish yourself uh, at that position if you're smart about it in the draft. And most teams, I think you should be taking one every year uh, in this stretch because there's so many good ones every year that come out um, that you'd be almost doing yourself a disservice if you didn't look at it.
3: Nick Baumgartner of The Athletic taking some time with us. Nick, I want you to put on your GM hat as you cover all things NFL, and I know the draft is your wheelhouse around this time of year, but it's pertinent to the Colts because there's a lot of moving parts with free agency and then the draft right around the corner after that. So if you put on a GM hat and you look at the Colts, they have the luxury of, as you mentioned, having jumped the line, at least they think they did. They have their quarterback, Mm -hmm. and he's on that rookie pay scale. And philosophically, people will vary based on how aggressive you get and where do you get the most aggressive from a spending standpoint while you have the rookie quarterback to maximize your window? In the Colts' case, it's a de facto rookie season, so you're also taking into account the fact that you want to make life as easy on him as possible. For the Colts, let's say they keep Michael Pittman Jr., whether it's a tag right. or a contract. Let's say they get it done and it's not a massive cap hit to where they still have money to spend. When you look at this draft and look at this crop of free agents at wideout, where are the Colts better serve to benefit Anthony Richardson, and maybe they do both. But where are they right. better serve? Take a big swing in free agency, along with Michael Pittman Jr.'s retention, or hit as many homers as you can in the draft at wideout.
0: I would do it in the draft. I would 100% do it in the draft, especially like we talked about earlier. What you know, the offense they run with what Sykin does. There, the guys that are coming out now they don't need time to adjust. They understand what's going on. They understand what's being asked of them. I, I really, I think that coaches and just the system, it's been forced because of the way the game has changed, but the position, they're just ready. They're more ready to go. And, you know, I like Josh Downs a lot too, but you could use another one, you know? I mean, there's, there you need more reliable people around a young quarterback like that. Like that's why, and CJ Stroud has been, uh, was terrific by himself, obviously, right? But if you look at the people that are around him and you look at the the players he was able to throw to this year, it helps off a lot to have, you know, talent like that that he's thrown to. I mean, it, it helps to have reliable people. And they did a good job of working trust and all that sort of thing, too. But guys you can trust, so a lot of times with quarterbacks, a guy your own age, a guy that's closer in age to you, a guy that you can understand and hang out with, because that's, that's a lot of it, a guy that you're going to spend time with and say, okay, all hell's breaking loose on this read. I need to find somebody. Where's my guy? You know, you need to find as many of those guys as possible to put around him. And I think that you do that in the draft. And, I mean, yeah, I think you you still do your due diligence and and free agency and everything else. And, obviously, you work what you got to do with Pittman. But you got to continue to sort of find guys in the draft that are going to help your quarterback uh, along the way as you develop them.
2: Look, man, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Nick. I will see you in a few days here in Indianapolis. Um, Take care, my friend, and thanks for coming on.
0: All right, guys. Take care.
2: And that was Nick Bumgarner. My co-worker at The Athletic does a lot more work than me around this time of the year because he is deep into film study, you know, the Senior Bowl, the you know East-West Shrine Bowl, all these different things to get us prepared for my draft season, which is what we're in right now. And I thought he made a very good point, Jimmy, to emphasize that they have to build this thing through the draft. And, and I think that's just the nature of what Chris Ballard has always done. And I also think it's, what they kind of have to do given the options that they have. You know, even though they have a lot of cap space, I don't see them going out there paying Pittman and then also paying another receiver. They probably got to find a pass catcher, whether it's Brock Bowers or a receiver or someone else in the draft. And And I'd be okay with that because, as Nick alluded to, there's a lot of talent in this draft. And as I told Eddie off air, I kind of believe Shane Steichen can turn – players or make them a little bit better than maybe they are because of the scheme stuff that he's able to do with them.